0: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com. That's Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
1: 18 plus. Revelation, the 11th chapter. We're looking at... We're continuing with the two witnesses. I'll begin with verse 1. Oh, we've, we've already covered this. And there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half the spirit of life from God entered in them, into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And They heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Thus far the reading of God's word. We've been looking at these two witnesses for the past couple of uh, Lord's Days, and I'd like to spend some time on a very critically important, yet almost universally ignored lesson uh, that I believe uh, our account in Zechariah from last week, which we'll look at again, and its reference of fulfillment essentially in Revelation 11, among other places we'll look at, teaches us. Uh, Let's turn, if you would, again to Zechariah uh, chapter chapter 4, remember Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament, so... You see Malachi, you've gone too far. But having read what we just read, then again, just to remind us what Zechariah says. Zechariah chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. Said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and its seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest not thou what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hand shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who has despised the day of small things?' They shall rejoice, and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I, and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick, and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again, and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me, and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, we can see the clear parallel. It's almost a restatement in in shortened version in in Revelation 11 of these two witnesses, two anointed ones. Hebrew literally, anointed, is sons of oil. Sons of oil. Last week I made the biblical case for the two anointed ones in Zechariah 4 being the types of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Uh, Since not everyone... Uh, who, well, I didn't want to divert attention. I also call them symbols. Uh, for those of you who are students of hermeneutics, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that types and symbols are different in Scripture. A type is a figure of something to come. A symbol is an image uh, of that which it is intended to represent. Um, Dr. Milton Carey in his uh, standard Seminary reference work, Biblical Hermeneutics, gives us a good example of each, each one. He says Adam was a type of Christ. The rainbow is a symbol of the covenant, okay, type symbol. Uh, the elements of this vision in Zechariah 4, including the two anointed ones, sons of oil, I believe are probably would be called types, even though they did not have material existence, uh, but they were a vision. Um, but whatever you want to call them, types or symbols, it's not critical. Last time we saw that the Bible tells us that olive oil is a symbol of God's blessings. You remember that. The candlesticks are symbols of the church. Uh, if you're familiar with Revelation 1, Jesus clearly says that, as we said. Now, we can't take time to repeat all the proofs of this. If you missed or don't remember last week's sermon, uh, you can pick it up on sermonaudio.com. We said that the two anointed one in Zechariah, uh, are Joshua, the high priest. Uh, it's not the Joshua from the Exodus, but it's, uh, this is another Joshua. But he was the high priest at that point. And Zerubbabel, who was the civil ruler, the king, if you will, uh, who both in their respective spheres of church and of state demonstrated their zeal for the true worship of the Lord against the idolatry in the wilderness of Babylon, they led Israel out of captivity. If you're familiar with the story, there, uh, brought them back uh, to the Promised Land in Israel, laid the foundation of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. They are the two sons of oil, the two anointed ones, uh, the Lord's olive trees. That, like the vision in Zechariah, are a conduit of God's blessing to uh, to the to the church. Uh, now, Zerubbabel was the civil ruler. Remember. Joshua was a high priest. So we have state and church. Just as Moses was the civil ruler and Aaron was the high priest earlier in history. Both kings and priests are anointed, often anointed with oil, um, historically here, when they begin their service, the very ancient custom. Uh, Anointed, by the way, uh, literally just means uh, applied with oil, greased, if you will. Uh, They apply oil to them. Uh, But it's, it's a signifies your your consecration to a holy office. Anointing a king was equivalent to crowning him. In fact, in Israel, a crown was not required for the king. Uh, the anointing was was the crown. 1 Samuel 16, 2 uh, Samuel 2, and other places say that. Uh, for example, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, uh, David was anointed as a king by Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, so showing the Lord's anointing, uh, making this a holy office. As we see in the New Testament, a minister of God. We'll get to that in a minute. 1 Samuel 16.13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed, anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So the civil ruler of a nation was considered to hold a holy office since it was believed that he was ordained by God to rule in a ministerial function but not in the church, in the state. The high priest and the king are each sometimes called the anointed. Leviticus, and I, this is on your handout sheet, you don't have to write these down if you don't want to, Leviticus 4, um, Leviticus 6, Psalm 132. Prophets were also anointed, First Kings 19, 1 Chronicles 16, Psalm 105. Both the king and the high priest, quote, stood by the Lord of the whole earth. That's what the two witnesses do. Meaning that they are faithful to Him, they serve Him, they serve as conduits, as pipes for the golden oil of His, bless- of his blessings. Okay. For the high priests, they are the conduits uh, in the church uh, for the blessings of the church. For the king, He serves as the conduit for the blessings of God's uh, blessing of God to the state, to the people, to the nation. Now, of course, his blessings only come through his word. We know that as Christians. Uh, so if you turn to Psalm 19, please. you uh, probably very familiar with it, but it's a wonderful uh, illustration of this. Psalm 19 verse, beginning verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the Lord's blessing flow through His word. It's perfect. Test- testimony, same thing, is sure, making wise the simple statutes of the Lord. These are all the same things, repetition. Keep a repetition. So the best theologians are in substantial agreement as to who these two witnesses are. The anointed ones in Zechariah, in Revelation the two witnesses, those men throughout history that have brought God's word to rule in the church and in the state. Now we have today no problem in understanding the former, that elders in the church... Are to be a conduit for the blessings of God to the church, the visible church we're talking about. But few understand, and this is the critically important yet almost universally ignored lesson, as I said uh, before we started, the very controversial, and I don't expect everybody will, will necessarily agree with this. And I, I pretty much guarantee you've never heard anybody preach on this, okay? That's nothing new with it. Uh, Civil rulers are just as responsible to perform the same duty, being a conduit for God's blessings to the state, and thus the people in the nation, as the rulers in the church are, to the church. However, this is the historic reform position. As anybody, if you're familiar with the subject, you know that. Now, to prove that, we could cite works by, well, numerous people, by the best known, brightest minds of the church but one need go no further than the Westminster Confession of Faith. Actually, if you would hand that out, I would appreciate it. Uh, It needs to be be read. Uh, While uh, Joseph is doing that, uh, I'm passing out a a section of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, If you have a modern version of the Westminster Confession, it will not uh, have all of these uh, phrases in it, uh, because they have been removed. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, uh, some, of them, some of these phrases have been removed by the American revisions but uh, we don't uh, this, is, this is the original uh, Westminster Confession of Faith by the way did you know that the assembly that wrote the Westminster Confession was called together by the civil government for the express purpose of composing a creed that would be used not only by the church but also by the state It wasn't just a a church assembly, the Westminster assembly. It was an official government called commission, if you will, uh, to develop a creed that would be used for the church and for the civil government. Okay, Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 28, Section 1. On your handout, you will see it. God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good, and to this end is armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of the evildoers. Section 3. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, yet he has authority and it is his duty, and I'm skipping over some parts so we don't lose our focus on the subject, to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, All corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinance of God duly settled, administered, excuse me, administrated, and observed. So the point is, this is the historic reform position, right out of the Westminster Confession. I'll stop there, so as not to introduce anything that would take us off the point. But the biblical position is that the civil magistrate or ruler, whether he's a king, a president, Governor, legislator, whatever form of civil government a nation has, is a minister of God and therefore has the responsibility to bring quote, all the ordinances of God to bear on the people in his nation. And of course, the only place God's ordinances are found is where? The Bible. Now, this is shocking to 21st century years. And it's oh so politically incorrect, isn't it? An office holder? A minister of God? I mean, the the President can you imagine what you'd say if you said this to some of your friends, even some of your Christian friends? The President, the Congress, the Supreme Court, not to mention all the lower courts, the state governors, the legislators, mayors, city councilmen and women, county commissioners, all levels of civil government are ministers of God. They're supposed to govern by what is written in the Bible? Even what about nations such as you know, China or India or Middle Eastern countries? African countries were not Christian. They're supposed to be that too? Yeah? Yeah. For one, the the Lord has only one written word. It's not just his will for the United States, is it? Matthew 28, Jesus said, Bring all nations under, under obedience to him. Second, the Bible says, All those who make laws for a nation are called to be ministers of God for good. Please look at Romans chapter 13. thirteen, beginning in verse one Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. If thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. (coughs) Three points I want to make about that. First point is, all power comes from God, including the power to rule a nation. Verse 1. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Okay? Or ordered of God. All things include the governments of countries. Civil power originates from the Creator God is founded upon his universal dominion as the king of the nations. Jeremiah 10.7, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to hide, abide his indignation. He is the king, everlasting king. Second point, rulers of nations are called ministers. Now, this should not sound odd to us. In many countries other than the United States, what do they have? leading their government. A prime minister, a minister of trade, a minister of foreign affairs, a minister of finance. All that is ancient language derived from the fact that a civil ruler is a minister. Now, are we to think that God doesn't want his civil ministers, those who pass and enforce laws in the nation, using the power they have been given to him? For there is no power but of God, but the powers that be are ordained of God using those powers are we to think he wants them to enact and enforce any law that he does not approve are we to think he gives them power to govern anoints them as his ministers but gives them no rules by which to govern no laws he wants enforced just says oh do whatever you like make up whatever laws you want well we don't think that he does that with his ministers in the church can I just stand up here and tell you whatever I think, and you know, we don't we don't need the Bible. We just to just give you my own opinion, whatever I think. No, of course not. We don't think he does that with the ministers in the church. Why do we think that he does that with his civil ministers? Third point in in this uh, Romans thirteen. The civil ruler in verse four is the minister of God to thee for good, to his people, for good. For good. Okay. How do we know what is good? Is that something we can make up for ourselves? Satan said so, and remember what he said to Eve. You know, if you eat the fruit, you will you will determine good and evil for yourself, and that's what people have been doing ever since, right? Instead of listening to God. Well, how do we know what is good? Even the smallest child really knows the answer to this question. Many adults have forgotten it. The answer is God is good, isn't it? There you go. That's an answer. Jesus said in several Gospels, there is none good but one. That is God. To know what is good, you must find out from the source of good. And he's written a book to tell you all about what's good. God tells us what's good. He is the source of all good. And since a civil government official is an ordained, anointed minister of God for good, it is therefore incontrovertible, if you believe the Bible, that he's to rule by God's law word, the Bible, which tells him what is good. Tells him how to do his job. Now, most evangelical Christians will agree that elected officials should be self-professed Christians. This is what most evangelicals, I think, mean, if you ask them, should, should an elected official be a self-professed Christian? Yeah, they'd like to have that, of course. Uh, moreover, they should read their Bible, they should pray about decisions, and then they do what they feel is the Lord's guidance, the Lord's will. That's about as far as any of, oh, if you want to call the, the values voters, I think is the latest term for them. Uh, used to be called the moral majority, and a, you know the religious right or evangelical vote. You know that, that evangelical block, but that's about as far as, and pretty much any of them would be willing to go. The problem is that's when all they think that's what the Lord wants in civil government officials. That thinking gets us presidents like Jimmy Carter. Do you remember Jimmy Carter or read about Jimmy Carter? As I'm getting old enough now I have to say if, you, if, you, if you've you read about him in history books. <laughs> uh, he was self-professed Christian, self-professed evangelical Sunday school, Baptist Sunday school teacher, uh, but his presidency wasn't what most evangelical Christians would call a ringing uh, success or what they would agree with in many cases. So, compare that thinking, that evangelical you know, majority thinking, to what the Reverend Samuel Wiley wrote in his eighteen oh three book, The Sons, Two Sons of Oil. Quote The magistrate is, in Revelation uh, Romans thirteen, called the minister of God for good to men. And Wiley says the ultimate end to be attained is the advancement of the glory of God as King of Nations and a concern to promote the prosperity of the church. Civil governments should have a concern to promote the prosperity of the church. Now that's one of the teachings of the Bible that sends virtually everyone, even devout Christians, into orbit. It's because it has to do with the sovereignty of God, which is what the natural man hates above all. It's obvious, to, if you see it, more accurately, if you want to see it, they shut their eyes to it because to believe it they'd have to change their entire worldview, That would mean they might lose their Christian friends who are more interested in being politically correct than biblically correct. To acknowledge that the Bible teaches that the civil government uh, and civil government officials not only should read their Bible and pray about decisions, but they should promote the prosperity of the church, well, that's just simply beyond what anyone's willing to accept. What about toleration? What about pluralism? The separation of church and state. Surely the Bible doesn't teach a state religion. Is that, is that what I'm saying it does? The head of the civil government in charge of the church? Is that what this is this is all about? Didn't our founding fathers flee from Europe to get away from that? Okay, let me make it clear the Bible does not teach that the head of civil government should be the head of the church. As we talked about, that's Erasteanism. Nor does it teach that the head of the church should be the head of the civil government. That's papacy. But it does teach that God is sovereign over all areas of life, including the state. The Bible teaches God sovereign over all areas of life, including the civil government. Church and state are and ought to be separate under the Lord. Now, most self-styled Christians refuse to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over all areas of life. That's simply what the bottom line. That's why most Christians are Arminians. They want to be ultimately in charge of their life, not God. They occasionally give lip service to God's sovereignty, but they really don't believe it. They even think salvation requires their cooperation. That's what, bottom line, Arminians believe. You know, Try presenting a case that civil rulers are ministers of God and should apply God's written word to governing the people, and you'll see how much they actually believe in God's sovereignty. Yet they can't escape the fact that God created the universe and everything that is in it. God is king of all the earth, in Psalm 47. Jeremiah 10:7. he is king of nations. We just read that other in Jeremiah. He's an everlasting king. So his sovereignty includes rulership over all civil governments, but not through the church. He ordains ministers for the church and ministers for the civil government. See the difference? He rules nations, but he doesn't rule them through the church. That's what the Pope will tell you. No, he rules nations by appointing his ministers to the church and his ministers to the state. Please look in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter one, beginning verse fifteen. Uh, yeah, let's begin in verse fifteen. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name in His name, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Note, verse 22. And hath put, now this is, uh, what, what the Spirit, the, the, we're talking about the Father, hath put all things under Christ's feet. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Now apparently many people's Bibles say in verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church except the civil government. Now, of course, it doesn't say that. The government of the United States, the government of the United Kingdom, the government of Russia, Japan, Zimbabwe, North Korea, Cuba, Canada, Sweden, government of every nation in the world is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Not will be, as many Christians believe. All nations are under the authority of Christ right now, officially. Now, in practice, no. It hasn't happened yet. The reason we don't see it is because they are in rebellion against him. God is long-suffering while they're filling their cup of rebellion to its brim. As it says in Romans 9.22, God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endures what's much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. So God is patient and long-suffering. But legally, officially, if you will, Jesus Christ is king of the nations. What about legislating morality here? Is that what I'm saying? You can't legislate morality. You've heard that how many times, right? Well, it's simply a very ignorant statement. You can't not legislate morality. Every law is legislated morality. It may not be biblical morality, but it's somebody's morality, somebody's idea of what's right and wrong. Laws against stealing, including fraud, come from Where? Thou shalt not steal. That's where it comes from. Laws against murder, Thou shalt not kill. Laws against perjury, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Now some other laws, for example, laws prohibiting prayer in government schools, are based on humanist morality. Humanist ideas of what's right and wrong. But every law is legislative morality of one sort or another. Christians believe the Bible is the only source of morality, thus is the only source of law. It's important to understand the laws of every nation are based on the moral system sanctioned by that nation. A nation in which Islam is the official re- uh, religion uses the Quran as its source of law. A nation in which Christianity is the official religion uses the Bible. Every morality is an aspect of an expression of a religion. One theologian said, In every culture, the source of law is the god of that society. The source of law is the god of that society. Because law governs man and society, because it establishes and declares the meaning of justice and of righteousness, law is inescapably religious. It establishes in practical fashion the ultimate concern of a culture. There's never been and cannot be a nation without a religious foundation or without a law system which codifies, enacts, the morality of its religion. Every state or social order is a religious establishment. The question is not, should there be an established religion? But since it is inescapable, the question is, which religion should be established? Even the United States has an established religion. It's called secular humanism. Every nation has an established religion. Whether they want to say they do or not, it's irrelevant. In our society today, the choice is secular humanism, autonomous man, which we have in the United States, uh, or false gods, Islamic and all non-Christian nations, or Christianity, which describes no nation today, uh, as far as uh, official uh, following scriptures that I'm aware of. But what is implied by ruling according to the Bible? What is implied by ruling according to the Bible? Well, that's a. Uh, I've laid the foundations here as to why Scripture should should rule the nation, and all nations. Uh, I've got I've got I can go on as to why, what is implied by ruling according to the Bible? How is that to be accomplished? Uh, how specifically are civil rulers to nurture the church, to protect and defend it, to promote its prosperity? Uh, I can say that for, for another time. I mean, if this if this is too much, let me know. I don't want to you know dump the whole load of hay on the, uh, on you. Uh, you know, I don't want to as, as the Lord said. Uh, uh, I have much more to say, but you cannot bear it. <laughs> so you decide. Okay, all right. What is implied by ruling according to the Bible? Okay, so second major subhead. Well, among other things, protecting and defending the church. The Westminster Confession says all blasphemies and heresies are to be suppressed by a civil ruler, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. Now, if people are shocked when you tell them that civil governments should rule by the Bible, wait until you tell them that. Let's look at Isaiah 49, if you would. Is it warm in here? Is it just me? Yeah. Could Could somebody take care of that, please? Isaiah chapter 49. Now, this passage in Isaiah 49 is very, very important and very much ignored. This passage, uh, the Lord is disclosing to Israel, which is the Israel of God, which is the church today, disclosing to his people, his body, if you will, uh, what her future holds. Isaiah chapter 49, in verse, beginning in verse 22. The Lord says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Civil rulers, he says, are to and shall protect and defend the Israel of God, which is the Church of Jesus Christ, the side of the cross. And this care is described in the tenderest of terms. Say mother and father cares for and protects their newborn infant. King shall be thy nursing fathers. He's talking to the church now and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust from your feet. Now, this passage is not about what happens. I've, I've read some commentaries on this. Well, this is what happens on the new earth, the last the earth when Jesus returns in the new earth. No, that can't be. In the new earth, there won't be any kings and queens. And it says here, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me, the end of verse 23. There will be no waiting for the Lord in the new earth. Now, this is saying what will happen in time, on earth, in human history, before Christ returns at the last day. Kings will be nursing fathers to the church. Queens will be nursing mothers. They will serve the church. People of God. Isaiah 40:10, if you want to flip over there, has exactly the same message. kings shall minister unto thee. Um, I'm wrong. It's Isaiah 60. Yeah, it's Isaiah 60, verse 10. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, again the Lord talking to the church, and their kings shall minister unto thee. And verse 16 at the end. Or, um, well, not the end, but Thou shalt also suck the milk of the Gentiles and shalt suck the breast of kings. Okay, another illustration of the king feeding or sustaining, nurturing the church. Which will happen in time in history. You know, We live in this little sliver of History, and we can't see these things, but we have to see with spiritual eyes and believe the Lord. So, how specifically are civil rulers to nurture the church, to protect and defend and promote its prosperity? Well, we've already seen what the Westminster Confession says, which is simply what the Bible says all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administrated, and observed. So, this says not simply to keep civil order which is the power of the sword, although it's an important part of the civil government's ministry. They're also to carry out the rest of what God's commands, such as, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down to them or worship them. If a civil government permits the open worship of false gods, is it not violating these commandments? If a civil government permits the public blasphemy of God's name, is this in keeping with the Lord's will? or the corruption of the Sabbath, or notorious rebellion against parents. Oh, people say, God never meant for civil governments to enforce these commandments. They regulate only private behavior. My question then is, where in the Bible do you find that? Where do you find that they only regulate private behavior? Were the Ten Commandments given only to private individuals, or were they given to the body politic of Israel. Did or did not God expect Moses as the civil ruler to enforce these commandments? Did he or did he not give Moses detailed case laws telling him how to apply the laws against false worship, against blasphemy, profanation of the Sabbath, and more? Oh, but those case laws only for ancient Israel. That's the standard argument. They don't apply to us today. Okay. Where in the Bible do you find the basis for that statement? Well, I'll tell you one place in the Bible, in the New Testament, okay, where you find the case law is upheld. At least one very important one. Please turn to Acts 25. In Acts chapter 25, Paul is is, uh, being kept a prisoner. And in Acts 25, in verse 11, Paul says, For if I be an offender, he's, he's talking to Festus, so if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. He says, if I'm guilty of anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. Well, Paul clearly believed that the Old Testament case laws requiring capital punishment for certain crimes remained in force, still remains in force in New Testament times. Matthew 5.18, the Lord said, For truly I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle Shall in no wise pass from the law. The little punctuation marks. Shall not, not pass from the law. The smallest letter in Hebrew will not pass from the law. The smallest little punctuation mark, John, the tittle, Will not pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Samuel Wiley, again in his book, The Two Sons of Oil, says, The civil ruler, quote, ought to remove all external impediments to the true religion and worship of God, whether they be persons or things, such as persecution, profaneness, heresy, idolatry, and their abettors, as did Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah, and other pious kings. We see in in 2 Kings 9, we're not going to take the time to read this, but it's on your handout, uh, King Jehu cut off the idolatrous house of Ahab. He destroyed the worshippers of Baal. And God commended him for doing all that in 2 Kings 10 and promised him that his children would sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. King Asa in 1 Kings 15 removed the Sodomites from the land. Removed is probably a... We don't go into detail, but I don't think he just deported them. He removed the Sodomites from the land and all the idols his father the king had made and in 2 Chronicles 14 and thus did... Quote, did good and right in the eyes of the Lord. There are many other examples of civil rulers practicing zero tolerance for false worship. That's one reason the Westminster larger catechism, question 108, says in part, quote, the duties required, again, this is on your handout, the duties required in the second commandment are disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, very important phrase, removing it and all monuments of idolatry. In other words, if you're a civil minister and you have the power that God has given you to to act here, then it's your job to obey the second commandment, remove false worship and all monuments of idolatry according to each one's place and calling. In addition, civil rulers are to use the lawful power that has been given to them by God to promote the unity of, purity, and peace of the church and its reformation. In Second Chronicles 29, King Hezekiah commanded the Levites to reform themselves. Now the Levites, remember, were, the, uh, were, were part of the, the how I'm describing, part of the worship uh, process. They're, they assisted the high priests and the, and the priests. Uh, so they were set apart. They were holy. King he- the king commanded them to reform themselves and to reform the worship of the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 29.5, Hezekiah says, Hear me, you Levites, sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. And in 2 Chronicles 29.30, King Hezekiah commands the people to attend the worship services and to observe the Passover. He wasn't the high priest, he was the king. The civil ruler is to rule as Christ's vice-regent for the good of the church. Again, if you say, well, that's all Old Testament. How can you apply this in the New Testament times? Because there's nothing in the New Testament that tells us, well, this has been fulfilled, this has been abolished. And you can't just say, you can't throw out the Old Testament and say, well, we only take out of the Old Testament uh, what what is uh, reaffirmed in the New Testament. Okay, where do you get the biblical basis for doing that? It doesn't exist. If you want to do that, then I guess, oh, um, Bestiality is okay, because it's not mentioned in the New Testament. It's only prohibited in the Old Testament. And if we're going to throw out the Old Testament, then we can have bestiality, or rape. Nobody would advocate that, so there's a disconnect there. William Symington, in his book Messiah the Prince, talking about what we read in Ephesians 1.22, uh, where uh, the Father has given Christ to be head over all things to the church, he says, Let's, let's go back and look at that, if you would, because we've been in Acts for a few minutes. Uh, again, let's go back to Ephesians to remind us what uh, Ephesians one twenty two says. Again, the Father hath put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, verse 23, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, William Symington in Messiah the Prince says, Does not the Apostle Paul speak of God having put all things under the feet of Christ and given him to be head over all things to the church? Mark the language. He is not only head of all thi- over all things, but head over all things to the church. It is for the sake of the church that he is invested with universal regal authority. In other words, the end of Christ's universal mediatorial dom- dom- dominion is the good of the church. Thus far, all is clear and undeniable, still Symington. But the nations are among the all things over which Christ is appointed head. It follows then that Christ is appointed head over all the nations for the good of the church. If so, there must be, now follow the reasoning here. If so, there must be some way in which the nations are capable of subserving the interests of the church. Is it possible and to conceive that it is not the duty of the nations to promote by every means in their power the good of the church? Is it conceivable that nations are not under obligations to advance the very end for which they are placed in subjection of Christ? Okay, Let's pick that apart for a moment. He says, Ephesians 1.22 says, Christ is head over all things to the church. And we know that the end of Christ's dominion is the good of the church. Nobody would deny that. No Christian would deny that. So therefore, the nations are among the all things that he's head over. So, he's, uh, therefore, he's appointed head over all the nations for the good of the church, since he's appointed over everything for the good of the church. Therefore, there must be some way in which the nations are capable of serving the church. So, is it possible to conceive that it is not the duty of the nations to promote the good of the church? Aren't they under obligation to advance the very end for which they are in su- placed in subjection to Christ? That's what he's saying. To, to kind of flesh this out, James Bannerman in his book The Church of Christ says, it is a striking fact that the only form of civil polity ever framed and established by God himself should stand markedly in connection with the Church of God. Many of, although many of the circumstances attending the alliance of church and state among the Jews were peculiar to that people, yet the alliance itself cannot be regarded as ceremonial or particular, or peculiar, rather, but must be held as intimating the divine will as to the lawfulness of such a connection. In other words, the only laws for a nation ever framed and established by God himself stand in connection with the Church of God in ancient Israel, Israel of God. Many of the circumstances of that alliance were peculiar to Israel. A famous example is putting the, the law about putting a fence around your roof, the edge of your roof. Well, is that required today? No, because we don't entertain in our roof. That was to keep people from falling off the edge of the roof when when people use their roof to entertain. We don't need that anymore because so we don't do that. But the principle is still the same. You protect your visitors. You don't have hazardous waste when you, you know, in, your, in your lawn or your, you don't build a swimming pool and... and uh, let the neighborhood kids use it whenever they feel like unsupervised. You protect uh, uh, people who who are on your property. So the point is, he says that the the only form of laws ever framed and established by God himself stands in connection with the church of God, although there were certain aspects of that that were peculiar to Israel, like the fence around the roof, yet the alliance itself cannot be regarded as ceremonial. Uh, It's not part of the ceremonial law, but it is the divine will as the lawfulness of such a connection between God's law, the Bible, and a nation. As I said, you can't... At one time in America, we did this. We legislated both tables of the Ten Commandments. And that was a high point of Christianity in this country. As a nation pulls away from enforcing God's laws... One by one, it sinks deeper and deeper into paganism and barbarity. Under paganism, anything goes, including civilization. A nation is punished more and more as it pulls away from God's law into humanism or into some false religion. It is punished more and more by God through plagues. Man, animals, and plants suffer from diseases that have never been seen before. We see this uh, in the news last week. There's some brand new disease and, I don't know, some crop. I don't remember what it was. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm involved, in, as, you, as some of you know, in, in agriculture. And we're seeing diseases and, uh, that we've never heard of before, uh, attacking uh, uh, soybean uh, uh, nematodes and you know, various other things. So God punishes nations that uh, refuse to enforce his laws. Uh, through increasing plagues, through crime, increasing crime, through attacks from outside the nation, uh, through the increased apostasy of, apostasy of the church, First Peter 4:17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and at first begin at, if it first begin at us. What shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? God brings judgment on the on the house of God, begins His judgment on the house of God. So I see the apostasy of even the most Reformed churches uh, today that began, well, I don't know when it exactly began. You certainly saw it a hundred years ago in the United States. So, to finish up, let me give you three questions. Well, let me give you a question. One question to ponder and, and discuss. If civil government officials are ministers of God, commanded by him to reward good and punish evil. If the Bible is the only authoritative way to know what is good and what is evil, then what should be the source of civil laws? The Bible or men's own ideas? The two sons of oil, the two witnesses, represent those men throughout history that have brought God's word to rule in the church and the state. Although the exercise of their God-given powers differ... For the church they are spiritual, 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not worldly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The exercise of their given powers differ. For the church they are spiritual. For the state they are worldly, Romans 13.4. He beareth not the sword in vain. They're both to rule, the civil governor and the church governor, ministers, They are both to rule as God's anointed ministers, applying God's word to every area of life. Civil rulers, whether they are presidents, legislators, or judges, are to rule by God's law word, the Bible. Constitutions of nations are to be founded on the Bible. They are to acknowledge the Lord as the source of all law, and God's word is the source of all law, and Jesus Christ is the ruler of all nations. Finally, please turn to Psalm 2. We'll end with Psalm 2. Verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled what a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Let's pray.
2: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.
0: 18 plus.